All right, cadets, let's get to work. Huh? Stabilize the inertial dampeners to restore the artificial gravity. And where's that? The controls are on the operations console. Ah, found it. A bit to the left. Your other left. That's the one. Artificial gravity restored. Transfer complete. Hello and welcome to Subspace Transmissions, the podcast where two Trek fans step into the arena and tackle the best, worst, weirdest, wildest, and everything in between that Star Trek has to offer. I'm Cam Smith, and joining me on the bridge. This is Tyler Orton, replicating some of that sour gravy. (laughs) And we're here this week to catch up with Star Trek Prodigy. Yeah, we covered the series premiere. Uh, There have been three episodes since then, Cam, and then it's going to go on a bit of a hiatus until early on in the new year, and we'll we'll catch up with it then as well. And I I, I just overall, I'm I'm finding the show uh, fun, enjoyable. There are like a lot of uh, things that I'm liking about the characters as well. I think if we can go episode by episode to kind of explain um, what at least I'm liking about it, but we can also kind of critique some things. But overall, I'm I'm finding this show much less, I suppose, uh, burdensome to watch than if I am getting frustrated with some of the newer uh, series that have premiered in the last four years or so. <laughs> burdensome or burnumsome? Uh, maybe that should be how I describe watching uh, the latest episode of Star Trek Discovery, Episode 2, The Anomaly. Cam, I'll, I'll share some brief thoughts with listeners at the very end of this episode, as you and I, we're going to be catching up on Star Trek Discovery in about two weeks' time. Yes. Um, I have really been enjoying Prodigy. It seems to not have the growing pains we've seen with the previous Star Trek shows we've gotten out of the Kurtzman era. I've really enjoyed Lower Decks, but... You and I spent uh, a few weeks there when Lower Decks started going, boy, the show is really rushing through its storylines and a lot of them aren't lining up very well with their themes. Whereas, like, the first four episodes of Prodigy have been pretty strong. I mean, I I know it's five episodes according to IMDb, but that two-part premiere is a little confusing there. But yeah, I gotta say, this first chunk of Prodigy I have found very, very encouraging, and I did not expect to be saying that. Well, the developers of the show, though, they they come from... a children's series background they, they know what they're doing when it comes to developing children's shows and it's very clear that they're uh, big fans of the star trek franchise and i wonder if that just means like alex kurtzman uh you know who is the shepherd for uh, the current era of star trek i wonder if he's just kind of taking a step back he's like yeah i don't really know much about kids shows so you guys uh, take the reins here i will stick my nose in you know more discovery or star trek picard that sort of stuff i just have to believe at the end of the day Kurtzman himself probably cares a lot more about overseeing a Star Trek show starring Patrick Stewart than one, you know, that's animated, pitched at kids. How dare you? He would not want to <laughs> be involved with a show starring one Brett Gray and Ella Purnell? <laughs> I just think um, in the if we were to rank the prestige level of the various uh, Star Trek shows operating at the Kurtzman factory right now, this probably, in the eyes of him, isn't number one. Actually, you know, I do kind of feel like a jerk because this show, it, it 
has a big credit with regards to Kate Mulgrew, who I, I definitely want to get into because mm-hmm. her presence in the series, like we got a glimpse of her at the very end of Lost and Found, that two-part premiere. And with episode three, why don't we just jump into it? Uh, this is Starstruck, which really introduces us to the hologram Janeway. And having Mulgrew's voice emanate out of my uh, soundbar while I see that very familiar image of Janeway in that classic uniform from the Voyager era. It is soothing, Cam. It, it is comforting to see. She is such a great anchor for the series. Just even stuff that could have been heavy-handed. And, and look, I think the show benefits a lot from it being a children's show. And like other uh, series, like we we're like, oh, that was really hit you on the head uh, with a lot of exposi- uh, exposition or whatever. It could get away with that. So when you know, Janeway explains what the Federation is and how it's built on peace, equality, you know, curiousness. Like, that's the stuff that I'm like, okay, good. They're, it's just not stuff like, we are Starfleet, we have values. It's like, okay, you explain what those values are. And um, this is why, like, the show, as you say, it's not really having those same groin pains that we've seen with some of the other uh, New Era series. Or, let's be honest, uh, w- with the older um, Era series, they all went through their groin pains as well. This one might be the one that's just most fully formed out of the gate uh, with regards to any other Star Trek show that we've seen. Yeah, because even TOS um, takes maybe like six or seven episodes to kind of find its footing. Um, yeah, this one has really come out of the gate strong. And even, you know, we talked about the premiere, which had a lot of very kind of heavy Star Wars overtones. And I feel like even those have dissipated a little bit as we've gotten to episodes, you know, three and four and what have you. It feels like the show has kind of found its own footing and grounded itself a little more in Star Trek than Star Wars, which I've appreciated. And, you know, circling back to Kate Mulgrew, I think this may be the best career choice for her in terms of a Star Trek role in what's going on right now. Because she is speaking directly to a young audience that she is going to win over because this character is a lot of fun. She does get to impart sort of the lessons of the show to the audience. And, you know, there could be a whole group of kids who are brought up learning from Janeway. Whereas, you know, Patrick Stewart comes back to do Picard. How many new fans are walking away loving Picard because of the TV show Picard. My guess is not that many. Hey, people that love watching heads decapitated, that is the prime audience for this, Cam. Come on. <laughs> like, who are the people who never watched Star Trek before, who tu- who tuned into Picard and were like, I am in love with this character of Picard? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know who the audience is for Star Trek Picard beyond people that just have, like, a lot of nostalgia for TNG. Like, is there an audience? Well, okay, you say a lot of people who have a lot of nostalgia for TNG, but is that the audience? Because it seems like a lot of them were the ones who were turned off of the show because it wasn't enough like TNG. <laughs> well, that's why I keep asking, like, who is Star Trek Picard really supposed to be for? Like, the um, the TNG audiences that love extreme gratuitous violence and cursing? Is, is that it? And, like, heavily um, serialized mythological storytelling, which wasn't a factor on TNG. <laughs> And also very, very convoluted storytelling. Like, yeah. I, I don't know. Okay, we can dump on Picard. We'll save that for, I guess, the uh, the season two premiere coming up in a couple weeks. But, um, uh, but like, w- with regards to Janeway um, a- as well, you bring up kind of a, a good, you know, uh, choice on, on the creators as well as Kate Mulgrew. The other thing is, uh, don't you think this is going to entice a lot of these younger audiences to say, oh, well, that's interesting. Like, uh, what else is this Janeway known for? This is a really good way to bring those folks into kind of uh, Star Trek Voyager proper, like like introducing them eventually. Maybe they're interested at 
age six or seven just yet, but, you know, get them intrigued about what, like, a potential live-action series could be, they're going to bring on Chakotay as well. I'm, I'm sure they'll be excited uh, and never be <laughs> disappointed about where they take that character on Star Trek Voyager. But, like, um, I also wonder, just, Cam, I, I think they could set up for other legacy characters to be brought down further uh, down the road, uh, brought up further down the road. Uh, just with regards to even now we know kind of the constitution of the USS Protostar and its capabilities I, I think that's why we'll uh, you know be getting uh, some appearances by other legacy characters soon that will draw people into the live action series I, th I think this is just kind of genius it might be the most genius move on the uh, part of uh, Paramount in this new era yeah it really seems like it could be and I am very encouraged to see where this show goes like you and I have complained back and forth, as I'm sure our listeners are more than sick of hearing, about the serialization of Discovery and Picard. But, like, there's ongoing serialization so far on um, on Prodigy, and I've found myself genuinely interested in where it's going because it's sort of, it's very much like just overhead sort of arcing stuff, kind of, you know, the way that, like, the original Star Wars films were or something. Um but we get to just focus on character journeys throughout these stories. And I've just really enjoyed going along with it because I don't feel like I'm having to connect dots like, say, you know, Culber coming back from the mycelial network kind of stuff. Well, it's not mystery box serialized storytelling either. You know, I keep bringing up the uh, the Mad Men way of serialized storytelling. I've, I've done that many times before. But Mad Men wasn't about like a mystery box. I, I mean, in season one, there was a little bit of a a mystery going on, but it wasn't one that overtook the entire identity of that first season the way that, say, you know, the Red Angel would, for example, or the Burn would, you know, and um, same so far, you know, four episodes in with regards to uh, Prodigy. It, it's not like every episode's left with a cliffhanger centered on, I don't know, some sort of plot that uh, is being hatched and we need to solve it as Reddit detectives. And I think Honestly, um, maybe you and I are just meant for children's audiences. That Maybe that's just kind of why, why it's working on us so well. We have finally found the show that matches our emotional intelligence level. <laughs> and uh, brain intelligence level. That too. <laughs> well, the fact that I had to call it brain intelligence shows you just how, <laughs> just how unintelligent I am. So. I'm like, Jankum is the smart one. <laughs> Yeah, look, um, uh, okay, so with regards to, uh, as we're moving through, uh, you know, Starstruck, I am finding Dahl kind of annoying. I think he is on a journey. I, I think this is a journey of maturity. He'll get there, but up until this point, he is essentially the main character. Maybe you can make the argument that uh, he's the co-lead with Gwyn. I'm, and she's on a journey as well, but I'm actually enjoying her journey up until this point more mm -hmm. than his. But what do you make of Dahl so far, especially as we see him really trying to take over the captain's seat at the very start of Starstruck? Yeah, I mean, he's definitely getting sort of the rebel kind of portrayal on the show, which, um, you know, when you're showing me like a teen rebel, it only carries so strongly with me <laughs> as being an old man now who's very grouchy. Um, but... It's the sort of arc I'm just waiting for them to kind of figure out where they're going. Because I understand where Gwyn's story is going, obviously, with the the uh, relationship with the Diviner. I know exactly how this could play out. Like, I have a sense of where this character is at emotionally. Whereas with Dahl, I'm like, it's kind of vague. It's like there's something out there he's looking for. Obviously, parents. But I don't really know what that means. 
So I'm waiting till we get a little more concrete grasp on who this character is and where he wants to go because it just feels like they've made him the star of the show without quite making him as compelling as the people around him. And I think that's why we do have the benefit of one Kate Mulgrew to kind of serve as that anchor. Even though he might be the star, we still have Janeway to fall back on, which you could say that that's a little bit cynical sort of storytelling. But here it works. Like, I, I, I don't think it's just pandering fan service for the sake of it. I, I think she serves like a good purpose. And I, as you say, Cam, she's serving as the entry point of Star Trek uh, for younger audiences. And I, I think that's excellent here. Um one of the things that uh, I was kind of curious about is, you know, like uh, Janeway appears, assumes everyone's cadets, and then she kind of establishes that, uh, you know, holograms can maintain lower level functions. Cam, I, I, we've had this discussion before. What, why do starships even need crews at this point if holograms can do everything? Yeah, that's one of those um, questions in Star Trek we just don't talk about because yeah. <laughs> uh, it would not make a lot of sense to send a lot of these, you know, living crews into very dangerous situations when you could just send holograms at this point but we just have to go with it yeah <laughs> so uh yeah like um th there's other moments in this one that i liked uh we got a shout out to space madness uh mm -hmm. maybe they listened to our episode from a, a couple years ago uh we also got to see images of the enterprise d the defiant overall i think starstruck is kind of a, a good episode two i, I think episode twos are always difficult to uh do right when it comes to any series at all because you already have the pilot and then you have to actually explain what the show is going to be like week to week from there on out also this is just a great introduction to the ship itself we, we got to wander around mm -hmm. the beautiful corridors the uh captain's uh uh quarters we we went to the mess hall the brig the, the bridge I, I i really really love the bridge design here and even just the exterior we, we got good images of the exterior um, in the premiere, but this one just kind of further establishes just w w what a beautiful ship this is, too. And that sequence at the end when they were escaping from the, um, you know, burning star or whatever it was, the uh, phenomenon there, it looked incredible. They are doing so much amazing stuff visually with this ship that I'm already locked in on this ship's identity within the show in a way that I'm not with some of the other new shows. It feels like it's on par with just even watching the opening credits of Voyager. I totally get the protostar, and obviously there's revelations we'll talk about in the coming episodes in terms of its actual functions, but I mean, just in terms of a visual and an identity, protostar really is selling easily. Like, I can totally picture young kids wanting, you know, the action figure or whatever, the vehicle of this. Uh, speaking of the opening credits of Star Trek Voyager, we did get the theme playing at uh, one point when we're now we have uh, Janeway in action here. It, it was a, a moment that worked better for me than hearing the Star Trek Enterprise theme in the Discovery premiere. Yeah. And I'll say more because it, it was subtle. It uh, wasn't blasting your eardrums with it. And I would say that the musical style of the Enterprise theme is, uh, like, say, more bombastic than the Jeff Russo style that we get in Star Trek Picard and Star Trek Discovery. His musical style, it, it's not a fit for me. I understand why other folks might like it in Star Trek. But when you have his more subdued sort of musical cues getting uh, you know, played with, with the more bombastic Enterprise themes, it, it just, it, it, I found it very, like, uh, uh, it, it jarred me. And whereas this one, this moment, it actually kind of fit well with regards to the series. 
Well, this show really seems to understand cinematic Star Trek and how to really deliver those moments. And that is that combination of visuals and just really fantastic music. And Star Trek has a long history of incredible music, whether you go to any of the movies. I think you would say, especially Star Trek Four with the Christmas uh, styled Star Trek theme. Um, but yeah, like that's, or the hospital escape music. Um, but yeah. you know, you look at the franchise and it's known for having a very strong musical identity and it really does aid moments like this. Um, I also want to talk just about Starstruck. Um, I felt like this was a really good stealth episode for Rock Talk. And like that character has a moment where she goes to the replicator and gets like prison food because it's the only food she's ever um, experienced. And I just felt like that was a kind of quietly powerful character moment there that in many ways was more effective than a lot of the stuff I get on Discovery. I, I still can't believe how dark this series is and that like it's depictions of, you know, indentured servitude, but with children. And I'm just like, oh, that like I, I hope they kind of uh, t dig a little deeper in just how dark that premise is as well. Yeah, it's like we're back in the 80s with Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom or something. Like, back in the days where they would scare kids in their entertainment. Uh, I mean, I don't mind them wandering to darker territory. I'm just curious to see if we see a complete liberation of this camp, considering it seems like there's a lot of people still trapped there. <laughs> uh, you say uh, Temple of Doom, I say Red Dawn, Cam. Red Dawn. Mm, Wolverines. Uh <laughs> I, I I do wonder where uh, very smart holographic Janeway was, uh, you know, where was she to make these great suggestions to the cadets in the DS9 episode Defiant, you know, those Red Squad cadets. I think they could have uh, benefited quite a bit from some sort of uh, guidance and mentorship from, if not Janeway, who is on the other side of the galaxy at that point, then some sort of other mentor figure from... Uh, Starfleet's Pantheon. Okay, here's a little fun experiment. Let's say they did have a hologram. It was just off screen. Who was the character that was their hologram that they were following? Oh, I, I know who, exactly who it was. Admiral Pressman. <laughs> or Lorca. Perhaps Lorca. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> either one. But, but uh, Mirror Lorca, right? Like, we, yeah. we, we don't know. Maybe Prime Lorca is exceptional. Maybe, maybe, yeah. Mirror Lorca somehow had hacked a system and created a hologram of himself that somehow wound up in uh, in the episode. Uh, yeah. Uh, before we jump over to uh, the next episode, Dreamcatcher, just any final thoughts you want to get out there on this second episode? Yeah, I thought there was a really inventive action scene where they had the fight in the um, vehicle replicator that was yeah, building yeah. the vehicle up around them. It reminded me a lot of the movie Minority Report where Tom Cruise like gets stuck in the vehicle as it's being built. And I just thought, again, really inventive action sequence, really well done. And it's something you and I have complained about with action scenes in Star Trek, but somehow I'm really enjoying the ones they're doing on Prodigy. Well, and because all of the main characters involved in that sequence were under the age of 18, you could say that this is called Minor Report. Oof. One could. <laughs> But they shouldn't. <laughs> I, I'm just going to assume that, uh, Cam, when you edit this episode, you're going to edit out all of those hearty chuckles that you just gave me um, <laughs> just a second ago. But, like, you had tears in your eyes laughing that hard. Well, there's definitely tears in my eyes. <laughs> okay. Let's uh, jump over to Dreamcatcher. And uh, we're now exploring M-Class planets, strange new worlds. I don't know. Discovery might want to pick up that uh, some of the one of these days that would be great but uh, it, it is fun that you, you're actually doing what I thought that you know, Star Trek is supposed to be about it is curiosity exploring the only thing for me is like I'm I'm not that all interested in those 
TV stories or even those film stories in which people have delusions that make them put their lives in peril. And I mean, obviously it's done to reveal what's in their psyche, but unless it's done exceptionally well, it, it typically doesn't work for me. There, there's other fun stuff going on in this episode, but I, I found this one just um, probably my least favorite of the season so far. I would agree with that, but I didn't think it was a big come down from the previous ones. Uh, I just, the next one pays off more. This is, I mean, um, Dreamcatcher and the following episode, Terra Firma, are very much kind of a one part one, part two, a la the premiere of this show. Um, this one, I because I was thinking about the uh, concept of the planet as well, because we have seen it on Star Trek before. It's a little similar to Strange New Worlds, I believe the episode title was, um, in Enterprise right at the start with the caves that came alive and whatever. Um, but I made a note on this where it's like, it's kind of a Star Trek cliche, but this is for children, and so you want to create planet gimmicks that are very easily understood and could be explained in a sentence. So I was like, okay, I mean, I appreciate that they're going kind of with a different angle on something we've seen a few times before and turning it into something very friendly for animation in terms of this, you know, all these consuming vines everywhere that are grabbing characters. That's a really great visual for a show. Um, and the way it kind of tapped into the psyche, it actually reminded me a little bit of a something that's not children's entertainment, but did you ever see the movie The Vines? Or sorry, not The Vines, The Ruins. Uh, I was more into The Doors myself. Uh, I have mm. not seen The Ruins. Although, isn't that... Um... Isn't that like an Eli Roth movie or something? No, it wasn't Eli Roth. Um, I don't remember who directed The Ruins. Um, it was okay. based on a book. Um, I think it was from the author of like A Simple Plan or something like that. And um, it was a pretty decent horror movie, actually. Um, similar kind of concept, though. The vines were causing people to um, kind of hallucinate and uh, kind of tapping into their psyches. Uh, I thought this was, in terms of a gimmick planet, something we've seen before but i could completely understand why why they went there for their first planet to show kids well the the reason like these gimmicks don't usually or these storytelling conceits don't work for me though is because you're taking agency away from the characters you're kind of allowing them to do things they wouldn't normally do uh, because they're being possessed by outside forces and and, and I, I get what they're trying to do is like reveal kind of the uh, what makes these characters tick I wonder if they could have done that by having the characters interact with each other. That's just my preference. I, I know that you know, there are other ways to do that, but this one just didn't quite work for me. And again, I, I can totally admit that that's just one of my own personal quirks when it comes to watching storytelling on TV or cinema. Mm -hmm. I thought there was um, some genuine good horror moments, though, for kids, where you had that scene where they find Rock Talk like buried in sand, just like in like just completely covered in vines and just like oh they're all over me and think it's like the cute creatures i'm like that is a pretty good horror moment for kids <laughs> yeah yeah uh, another horror moment is when they elicited star trek nemesis with picard on his dune buggy uh, aka <laughs> now it's called runaway so which is kind of a i guess it's a, a bit of a heavy-handed nod to what all these children are as well like they're all runaways too, but like I guess you can call the uh, the dune buggy this. I don't know. That or they're just big fans of Joan Jet. Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, I also like the uh, the phaser versus tricorder sequence. Cam, growing up, I, I never cared about like having a phaser toy like that. It was the tricorder for me all the way. And what, having having kids on this series kind of interacting with those devices, that was just kind of a fun moment that pulled me back to my own childhood. And again, uh, you play with the phaser, you're going to get shot. Well, I appreciated how, you know, Hollow Janeway has introduced kids to the iconography of Star Trek. And it's something we talked about, I think, in the first episode. or I can't remember if it was when we did the premiere or when we were talking about what this show should do or, you know, before it aired. Um, but sort of introducing kids to the fundamentals of Star Trek. And we had the introduction to the Federation, which, by the way, um, I like that they worked in some Spock imagery there in, the, uh, in Starstruck. But here we get the introduction to, yeah, classic, um, you know, tricorders and phasers, how they work. It's the sort of thing that obviously as people who've watched Star Trek forever and are rapidly decaying, we completely just, yeah, 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 we know what these are. But I think it's really important information to be imparting to kids how these things work so that whatever Star Trek they go into next, everything's established in their minds. At this point in the series, um, what are your overall thoughts on the villains, though? The, the antagonists that are chasing down the USS Protostar and the, uh, the runaway crew, so to speak? Well, Dreadnought, my man Dreadnought, has not been getting the screen time he so richly deserves um, at this point in time in the show in Dreamcatcher. The Diviner? Boy, I don't know what to make of the Diviner because there's nothing to talk about. It's kind of like the Emperor in Return of the Jedi. And not after we've gone to the prequels and learned all about who the Palpatine is and who this character is. When you just look at Return of the Jedi, you have old man with cane who shoots lightning. Don't know a lot else. That's kind of how I feel about the Diviner. Uh, he's evil. Um, he has a daughter that's been, you know, kidnapped by the crew. I don't have a lot else. Like, there's nothing redeeming about the character. So I'm waiting till we get a little more depth. I don't know that we're going to get it. But I'm also praying that this doesn't become the ongoing villain of the entire run of Star Trek Prodigy. Like, hopefully some point down the road, whatever happens to him, we move on to something else in the future. It would be just, I think, a bit of a bummer if we had five seasons of Star Trek Prodigy where the Diviner is the main villain. I'll get you next time, Gadget, said Dr. Claw. <laughs> I, I I think he could be the Dr. Claw of Star Trek Prodigy, though. Yeah, like He has the connection to Gwyn. Uh, we can get into it more in the next episode as well. Uh, that might be up for grabs, if you know what I'm saying. And look, I, I just... These antagonists seem a little one note to me. Like mm -hmm. they're, you know, like I, the thing that I like more is not people, not antagonists that are evil for the sake of being evil, but it's simply people that have different goals and different motivations than our crew. And, and when those two things clash, like that's where you get like good, interesting, layered drama. Like I think back to TNG, a lot of those episodes, it just depended on like, a scientist wanting to, I don't know, use the deflector dish to, you know, ignite volcanoes on a planet to help release some sort of gas to save it. And the Enterprise crew is like, no, maybe we should try something else. And like, that to me is kind of more interesting because it's not, it's not an evil mad scientist who's just twirling like a mustache for no reason whatsoever. Or when you look at some of the classic Trek adversaries like the Romulans or the Klingons we understand where they're coming from and why there's a clash between the two sides and or even the Borg as well like you can understand the philosophy of how the Borg operates and why they would be at odds with the Federation 
it's tough to come down in a way where you can wrap your head around the philosophy of the Diviner when his um, plan seems to revolve around child slaves. Yeah, <laughs> I, I don't think we're ever going to come around on him as being like an anti-hero moving forward. It seems tough. Um, I mean, the vocal performance by John Noble is pretty effective. He has a pretty scary voice. The design is a little too Star Wars Rebels for me. He's not really standing out as particularly distinctive in that way. I'm just hoping they give me something that's a little more of a hook as we continue further into Season 1. Because it seems like the type of character that could get kind of old for people. And you can't even really give him points for like a instantly iconic design like say shredder you know in the the uh, ninja turtle show or something yeah. um look I, I have more to say about uh, the next episode terror firma um any final thoughts on this one um overall like just decent setup for part two but it's kind of hard to talk about this one just as an individual episode i thought there were some good yeah, scenes of yeah. tension and janeway had some good moments was this the episode um where we got Hollow Janeway becoming a monster, or is that the next one? Uh, I believe it's this one, yeah. Okay, well, that was a really effective sequence, and gave um, Kate Mulgrew something really fun to do, because, you know, Patrick Stewart got to do a like, wild French accent on Picard, but Janeway got to be like a really badass monster and be genuinely scary. I thought this was the uh, the better one, you know, the better job here. I don't know, I thought that French accent was pretty frightening on my ears. <laughs> terrifying and i do appreciate that they are making something that's a little bit scary for kids i think that's valuable yeah well uh, okay let's jump ahead to terror firma which i honestly think that if the star trek discovery writers have thought of that title uh last season with regards to the giorgio farewell episode which was terra firma i think they totally would have uh, jumped on that amazing pun i have to uh g give a real tip of the cap to the writers here at uh, star trek prodigy for coming up with that I also have to give a tip of the cap to them for short titles. There's no The Butcher's Knife Cares Not for the Lamb's Cry on a show pitched at children, so I'm loving Dreamcatcher, Starstruck, Terror Firma. Please, don't give me convoluted titles for our podcast episodes. <laughs> it is very much in line with regards to Voyager. Cam, uh, I think we talked about this years ago, but if you look at the Voyager episode titles, I think we figured out like 90% of them are like one word it's yeah it's weird how short they are but uh look um i think this episode kind of represents the jumping off point for what the series is going to be moving forward we know the constitution uh, no pun intended of the ship's design in, in which it is capable of warp speed like we've never seen before it's, it's powered by a protostar i don't think it really makes sense to call on it to like engage in proto warp doesn't that mean like pre-warp like that's doesn't quite uh make sense uh, but look, uh, we, we also know that Gwyn is realizing that uh, maybe her father doesn't have her best interests. Like, he chose the protostar over saving her. So we kind of know where she's going to be with regards to her allegiances moving forward when, you know, those kids chose to save her. She chose to defend them uh, against Dreadnought as well. So it's interesting how um, just kind of the character and story elements for what I think the show is going to be week to week what i suspect it's going to be week to week is more or less kind of formed and, and that's why i'm kind of looking forward or pretty much looking forward to or i should say absolutely looking forward to <laughs> the next episode early in 2022 
Yeah, I really thought this moment where um, her, you know, father, the diviner, turned his back on her was really effective. Like, dramatically, it had genuine weight. Um, it's the type of decision, you know, like, from a character point from the diviner that, I don't know, some of the live-action Star Treks haven't pulled off as well. Like, it was very clean-cut and really effective and had some actual drama to it. So I walked out just happy in terms of a kind of a revelation moment for this episode. Um we see a lot of, especially lately, you know, these kind of epic Star Trek episodes. But, like, a moment like this, to me, really made this episode have genuine impact. Well, even stuff like holographic Janeway saying to herself, what would the real Janeway mm. do? Like, that's adding layers onto, like, a character that I, I don't believe is sentient. And, well, it also brings up the question, do, do you think the hollow Janeway will ever become sentient or are they gonna just kind of not go down that road because of how problematic it could be having kind of an existing Janeway out there as well like a flesh and blood Janeway well okay first thing there's gonna be a mobile emitter at some point right is there uh, perhaps perhaps but um yeah I I, I I I don't know for certain yeah yeah it just seems likely to me at some point down the road we'll get some sort of you know, variation on, like, I don't know, proto-energy will do something or other. But, um, I think we're going to see, um, an evolution of the Janeway hologram. I don't know if we're going to see full-on Doctor, though, where it becomes a sentient being. I think we may just see growth within the hologram as more, um, you know, more input is going into the program and evolving it. I, I don't think they would just replicate the Doctor's journey. That would seem a little too samey to me. Well, as long as she's not singing opera every single episode, then I can live with that. Well, she's kind of like a hollow nanny on this show to these kids. Is she like the Mary Poppins of Star Trek? <laughs> she's eventually just going to float away in the uh, the final moments of the series? <laughs> yes, that's that's the perfect ending to this show. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Are you talking about uh, old Mary Poppins or new Mary Poppins, Cam? I don't know of a new per uh, Mary Poppins. What are you referring to, Tyler? Oh, don't tell that to Lin-Manuel Miranda. <laughs> Why was that movie, like, verging on three hours long? That that, that was insane. Probably because the first one was quite long, so they were like, well, you got to replicate it. So, I mean, it really was a remake in so many ways, and I'm yeah. really bagging on it. It was okay, but, uh, yeah, not a, not a particularly um, worthy sequel. It was fine, but there was no reason for it to be like two hours and 45 minutes long or however long it was. But um, anyways, uh, uh, back to terror firma. Um, just even stuff like like uh, using those drones that they've been deployed on Discovery as well. But it actually kind of solves a lot of these like problems that we never even really kind of considered during like kind of the Berman era of Star Trek. Just about like regular maintenance for ships. So it's just kind of interesting seeing those drones used as scrubbers to fight off the vines as well just one of those little niggling details that i can appreciate them like uh kind of jumping on and and using kind of the evolution of what we saw established in discovery and putting it to good use you know like uh 130 years later or however long it's been i also just really love the ingenuity they had throughout in terms of problem solving against these vines um, a lot of other shows would just have them blasting at these things endlessly, whereas it seemed like there's actually characters trying to solve how to get away from them and using, you know, as you said, you've got Janeway sitting there, you know, hollow Janeway saying, think like the real Janeway, what could work? 
like it's actually someone trying to solve a problem versus like kind of the overkill approach which a lot of the other live action star trek shows do yeah one of my little critiques and i realize i'm just gonna have to live with it now because it seems to be like a running gag but when we heard them uh, or heard gwyn refer to it as a constipation and then hmm. dal corrected her and said constellation none of the there's a similar joke in the premiere I, I I can't quite remember what it was, but the jokes don't make sense unless they're both speaking English as, as native speakers. Yeah, you know, like so that's why I, I'm just kind of like it's a joke for the audience, but it's one of those jokes if you kind of think about it logically, it's um, it'll bug you. And as somebody as OCD as I am, it it, it bugs me a little bit too. I mean, it's tough to defend if it's not that funny. So like, True. had I had I been like rolling in my chair, I'd be like, I don't even care if it makes sense. Kind of like, honestly, you and I were, um, you know, pretty accommodating to when there was the uh, mix up with the Universal Translator on Discovery. I remember seeing people complaining about kind of the logic of that sequence, but it was a lot of fun and well executed, and a lot, you know, just a great kind of gimmick of, for a scene. Um, Sorry, what was that? What was that mix up? I uh, just jogged my memory where it started rotating all the languages. So none of the characters were speaking their own languages. They were hopping all over the place. Um, yeah. It was in Obel for Charon, I believe. And um, it was just like a lot of fun to see all the actors do this. And moments like that, if there's like an ingenuity to it, I'm willing to look past the conceit. Um, some of the lines, like, as you're saying, the constipation joke, I'm like, well, if I found it really funny, I wouldn't care, but you kind of just sure. Whatever. Um, so, Cam, uh, what do you think the show is going to be like week to week? Like, are, are we still going to go forward with kind of these, you know, serialized stories where they're just on the run all the time? Do you think that they're going to have more episodes uh, often kind of like starstruck than what we had with, uh, you know, Terra Firma, Terror Firma slash um, uh, Dreamcatcher? Like, uh, what do you anticipate kind of the, the raison d'etre is moving forward i have a hard time wrapping my head around this show being five seasons or what however long it goes of this crew being chased by the diviner every week like that just seems so one note so i feel like we're going to go in different directions he, he um, is a main character though like like he is literally main character that's that's why i i suspect that might be the case that just seems to me so weird like he couldn't he just be a character for like a season or two um we'll sure, see i guess could, yeah yeah, because like, although I, I did I laugh. I think we've got like 20, I think we have 20 episodes of this, at least. Yeah, yeah. I did kind of laugh when he's like, get my ship, the Red Pearl. And I was like, the Red Pearl? That's not that scary sounding. <laughs> what was the name of the uh, the, the flagship of the Terran Empire? Was that just the Charon? Yeah, uh, was it the, yeah, that sounds right. That sounds, yeah, yeah I think so. Yeah, I, I would have preferred the Red Pearl. For, uh, as opposed to the Charon myself. The Red Pearl sounds like a total pirate ship, though. <laughs> exactly. Just, like, after you've had the Black Pearl. Yeah, okay. Um, so my hope is, because one thing I noted when I was watching Dreamcatcher was, oh, it seems like this show is not rushed. It doesn't feel like early Lower Decks where we're just barreling through an episode to kind of wrap up the story. And then I realized it was a cliffhanger, and I was like, oh, okay. I was about to give this episode a ton of credit for, you know, having this visit to this M-class planet with, you know, that can read your, your thoughts and whatever, and doing that in 22 minutes that feel really well paced. Bonus points. Awesome. Good job, show. And then we get this continuation. I was like, oh, 
okay, well, I'm wondering, is this going to be a show that just has a lot of these adventures divided over two episodes or something? And I'm hoping we get a lot more just hopping around week to week. I don't need to see the Diviner chasing them every week. And actually, to be fair, during Dreamcatcher, that sort of stuff was very much in the background. You got like one or two little cutaways, but by and large, it was just the crew driving the story. So I'm hoping we just spend a lot of time doing that in the future, going to new locations, new worlds. Um, it can tie into whatever the larger story is, but I'm hoping it's hopping to new planets and just exploring the relationship, particularly between Dal and Gwyn, because I feel like that's where we need to be focusing our energies, less so than kind of the outside sort of stuff. So like my suspicion, and it's that this show is mainly for kids ages 6 to 11, you know, I, I, and I, I say this as somebody whose friends that have children, they're, they're mostly younger than like four. So it's kind of tough for me to know if that, if I'm correct in assuming that's the audience. I remember when I was, you know, that age, six to 11, it wasn't really serialized TV that I was, or cartoon shows that were going on. And I, I was kind of thinking about that earlier today, but then I realized like, well, there wasn't really serialized adult shows doing that much either in like the 1990s uh, frequently at least and so mm -hmm. I, I just wonder then if, if this is where like children's programming has just naturally evolved to and kids are just kind of used to this sort of serialized uh, storytelling maybe it's just kind of hook to keep them going to the next episode as well and honestly like we might think it's kind of weird they're gonna do like four episodes and then they'll bring uh, they'll have a bit of a hiatus. They'll come back for another four or five episodes and then another hiatus and so on. I think this show is all about like building the Paramount Plus archives. You know, as long as the library is continuing on, kids may be catching up to it, you know, uh, a year, two years, 10 years down the road and you'll have like this giant library mass. So it might seem like kind of weird on a kind of a short-term basis, but it, it does make like long-term business sense from what I can tell. Yeah, I agree with you. Like the long-term aspect totally makes sense but i would be very like i would be very interested to know from people who are showing the show to their kids now if this release strategy works for them in this very moment because i feel like kids have a short attention span and when you get your four episodes and then it's like okay see you in two months and then we'll have another hiatus after that you know for we're gonna have five episodes later it seems not great in the moment and they're coming out week to week as well yeah yeah like when you have um terra firma and dreamcatcher like those two probably should have just been combined into an episode or you know that at least released in a way where you can just kind of binge the two of them yeah so i don't know it, it'll be interesting i just like for me watching cartoon shows at that age i'd watch them like daily like um mm -hmm. and th there'd be a, a ton of them that would air you know, for a couple months straight. And then you, I, I do remember with cartoon shows, you, there would be long, long hiatuses between seasons. So, and that's just kind of the, like the nature of the animation business. But I do remember always having access to keep watching them again and again. And I guess that's what goes on with the streaming services as well. When it comes to kids shows is kids, they'll, they'll burn through a show. And I remember being far more happy to rewatch things immediately um, back when I was young versus where I am now, where I, I like to have more of a break between revisiting things. Oh, yeah. I mean, I was a big fan of Masters of the Universe and then Ghostbusters, the animated show. Not the one with the ape. I don't know what that show was. That but... was so weird. Was that like British or something? I don't think so. I think it was American. But so 
I actually know the origins of that, and I found out by accident. Um, so I was actually in a DVD store many years ago when DVD stores were a big deal, and they uh, had a box set labeled Ghostbusters, and I picked it up, and it was those characters from that animated show, but it was like a film series from like the 1940s or 50s or something. And so it was like a black and white series, and there was, you know, the two guys and the ape in this in this film series. And I, these movies are lost to time, pretty much, other than that DVD collection. And I'm guessing what happened was, after Ghostbusters blew up, you know, theatrically in 84, and they were developing the animated show, um, they struck while the iron was hot and made this animated show based on these characters, which is why when they released the animated one based on the character, the Ghostbusters we know and love... It was called the real Ghostbusters. Well, it's always disappointing whenever you know mm-hmm. the TV announcer said Ghostbusters coming up next, and I was always pumped. And then it inevitably be like <laughs> the the ape. It's like, oh, not this garbage. <laughs> and yet, did you watch it? No, I I'd always try to watch like the first couple minutes. I think I was just so angry that I I couldn't bear with it. Uh, I, I I'm being completely honest here. I was also angry. I think I did watch quite a few episodes of it, though. Um, I, I couldn't name a single one, or I can't recall any details of that show. That's how bad it was, but I did watch it. But no, like, shows like, um, you know, The Real Ghostbusters, Masters of the Universe, Ninja Turtles, I would just watch them over and over and over. Like, I would come home every day, as you said, and watch them daily. And I, you know, you wanted new episodes, but I was more than happy to revisit <laughs> the classics over and over again. Um... I would imagine kids will be a lot happier when there's like a larger bank of Prodigy to rewatch, though, as opposed to four episodes. I know. <laughs> um, look, overall, uh, I'm digging the show. I think it's on the right track. What we need to do, though, is we need to get like a, a guest on the show with kids in which it, this is kind of the target market and just kind of talk to them about their own kids' experiences and try to figure out if this is going to be something that would draw them in or maybe the kids are already interested in star trek and this is just something that is keeping them kind of uh in there i just think it, it just seems so so long overdue that uh paramount slash cbs viacom pursue the strategy of kind of an animated series we haven't had one since the 1970s but this is how you're going to maintain your audiences for this very very valuable franchise moving forward and cam we've said it enough times but Every year we go back to that Las Vegas convention, um, we feel as if we're still the young bucks and mm. we're not getting younger. We've only gotten like much older over the uh, nearly a decade that we've been going to Las Vegas. I thought you were going to say we've gotten a lot older over these two years of a pandemic. <laughs> I was uh, like, yes, yes, we have. <laughs> <laughs> no, I agree, though. Like, And it's something we've talked about from very early on in this podcast, that they really need to be finding a way to bring in new fans. And there was the rumors of the animated show um, after the first or second Kelvinverse movie, I can't remember which, that they were developing one then. And to me, that was like, why is this not a thing? Like, this needs to be a thing. Because when Star Wars was having its rocky period uh, before the sequel trilogy, what sustained it was shows like The Clone Wars and Rebels. And I know of a lot of kids that were watching those shows and really loved those characters. And the fact that there was so much excitement when Rosario Dawson showed up in The Mandalorian... Well, she's playing a character from, you know, The Clone Wars and also from Rebels. It's a way of getting a young fan base invested in characters that you can then attach to the larger properties. So 
the fact that they didn't do this quite a while back is insane, but also Star Trek was in, you know, just a generally weird place in terms of new TV shows anyway, but it's overdue to be doing this. Yeah. Well, uh, Cam, uh, look, we're, we're looking forward to the next cohort of episodes that uh, will be premiering early next year. In the meantime, maybe a little bit of uh, Star Trek uh, news that we can discuss. And I'll offer just just maybe like 60 seconds worth of thoughts on the latest episode of Star Trek Discovery, The Anomaly, before you and I go into a deeper discussion in a few weeks there. But um, look, as everyone was awaiting the premiere of Star Trek Discovery across the globe, um, just days before the premiere was going to drop, uh, we found out that international viewers that have been able to enjoy it on Netflix wouldn't be doing so anymore. Like, we get to watch it on Crave TV in Canada. It airs on Paramount Plus in the United States. And the rest of the world pretty much had to rely on Netflix, which is a giant platform. Uh, that is how you're going to get eyeballs. But then Paramount said, like, okay, you're going to have to wait until we launch Paramount Plus in other countries sometime in 2022. I have no doubt that that uh, everyone has, like, a total reason to be, like, furious about this, especially just a few days to go ahead. Now it looks as if they've gotten a deal going. They're, they're going to accelerate, like, the launch of Paramount Plus in a lot of these countries, or at least making it available in those countries. Pluto TV is going to be airing discovery in mm-hmm. uh countries like austria and, and germany and france and italy and you know but but what i'm getting at here cam what, what, what the story reveals is how paramount slash cbs viacom they just don't have their stuff together they do not know what they're doing um, if you're going out to the wire with negotiations, maybe they wanted to keep the Netflix deal going, but wanted to renew, go, renegotiate to help build their uh, subscribership for Paramount Plus. Maybe that's it, or maybe they just couldn't figure out what to do in terms of money with regards to having to renegotiate. renegotiate. But what it says is like it's just a complete mess over then. It makes me more and more worried about kind of um, perhaps the lack of business vision that they have for Star Trek moving forward. And I bring this up because. We don't know what the state of the movies is at this point. Like, we, we have the Matt Checkman movie seems to be the furthest along. At one point, they're... Since, since Star Trek Beyond, I think there have been, like, five or six different projects on, under development. And still, like, mm-hmm. what, uh, that was six years ago at, at this point? And we've got no movie. That, that's going to be the longest gap since uh, we saw, you know, Nemesis uh, hit the big screen. And we had to wait until 2009 to get another one. Um this is just like the, the Star Trek is such a monetarily valuable property, and, and to see it mismanaged like this, just from a business perspective, it, it's just baffling, utterly baffling to me. Well, Paramount's had a lot of problems just as a film studio yep. Yep. in general. It's a struggling one, um, and Tyler, you know, we have a very different experience with Paramount Plus than people in the U.S. do. But for us, Paramount Plus is um, akin to dial-up internet, really, <laughs> in the world of streaming networks. <laughs> it's the AOL discs you get in the mail. <laughs> it's uh, like the uh, alt news groups uh, that you would go visit uh, back in the day. It's Hotbot. <laughs> it's Webcrawler. <laughs> or Ask Jeeves. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's embarrassing here in Canada. I-, I would like to experience the version that Americans are getting because... 
it seems at least better than what we're getting. Well, the library is uh, for a hundred percent. Like our library is just pathetic. Uh, oh yeah, just due to licensing issues here in Canada. But I was listening to a podcast. Uh, it was the episode of the franchise where they were talking about. Um, the Paranormal Activity series, and there was the new Paranormal Activity that came out this past Halloween, and they were ridiculing Paramount Plus for only having two Paramount, uh, Paranormal Activity movies on the streaming service, like Part 5 and the new one. And they were just like, how is this possible when you have your own streaming network and you only have two Paranormal Activity movies which you own? And it's that sort of thinking that just... I think Paramount Plus... Uh, is really really rocky i i don't know if they're gonna figure it out either i mean i remember a lot of talk about the embarrassment of the launch of hbo max for americans um and it seems like hbo max has really gotten its stuff together and become a service people really value i don't know that that could happen even with paramount plus because they just don't have the content that like an hbo max does well they also just don't have kind of the the jumping off platform you know that you would have just just the brand of HBO mm-hmm. uh, that that uh, HBO Max is just such better branding than calling it Paramount Plus, for example. Uh, I, I also want to point out, like, okay, so like the biggest TV series or, or like uh, I don't know, top five, just in terms of sheer ratings right now in North America, it, it's the cable series Yellowstone. Uh, with Kevin Costner. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if you've heard of this, Cam. But, My uh, dad is it, a huge it fan. Is the t- Taylor Sheridan show who you might be... I, I, I know that you're familiar with Taylor Sheridan, but um, yeah. yeah. Uh, you said your dad... Uh, what, what was that? My dad is a massive fan of this show. And there was okay. actually a funny headline on um, entertainmentweekly.com where uh, Yellowstone premiered the other day and it's their story, the headline was, everyone's dad watched Yellowstone last night. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's actually pretty hilarious but like yeah the problem is is you would think that paramount plus would you know have this all over their platform as they're trying to accumulate subscribers they sold all of those rights off uh and they got a pretty penny for them but but they have absolutely no rights to one of the biggest tv shows on right now so now they are in the spot of having to develop uh like spin-off shows i think there are like two spin-off shows under development, that'll be going straight to Paramount Plus, and then they'll have to draw in viewers and subscribers that way. And I, I just feel as if they just—it just seems like rookie mistake after rookie mistake with regards to how they want to execute on a streaming service in in the context that that's what everyone is doing, and everyone's doing it far more successfully. Even Apple TV Plus, which doesn't have a ton of content, um, it has enough um like premiere content to keep people coming in after they use up that free one-year subscription they get from buying a new iphone like um i haven't gotten rid of my subscription yet because i keep finding that they are bringing in like enough notable uh projects that keep me interested whether it's movies or tv series with notable stars or, or talent behind the scenes as well i just paramount plus has star trek and they're trying to get something going on with Yellowstone, and that's kind of it. Like, I just, their, their planning is just bizarre. And this is just like yet another case of this when they couldn't get the international streaming, lights, streaming rights in order in time for the big premiere of Star Trek Discovery Season 4. Well, like, they had the, um, the Twilight Zone for a little while, and that didn't really pan out in a big way. Do they have anything prestige in the works or anything they've announced? 
I, I I wouldn't use the word prestige. I think Yellowstone would be yeah. the closest, and that that's not really kind of a. It's not as if Taylor Sheridan is trying to make a prestige series. I think he's kind of more kind of self-aware of it being kind of a pulpy series in that, you know, it, it can get some uh, accolades, you know, for acting and, and so on. But I, I'm trying to think if there's, you know, uh, aren't they doing like a, a Fatal Attraction um, series, I think, for Paramount <laughs> Plus? I think that's something that was just announced a week ago. So Home run. Home run, Home run right there, Tyler. Yeah. Say no oh. more. I want to turn this whole conversation around about the triumph of Paramount Plus. <laughs> Do you know what they were doing though? It was okay. It was the uh, Alex Kurtzman was doing the Clarice spinoff series that oh, yeah. was developed for Paramount Plus, and they said no, it's going to air on CBS, and so they had to make changes because of course you can't get as uh, nasty when you're doing like kind of a, a Hannibal Lecter universe TV show if you're on basic like network broadcast. Uh, but now the show is off CBS, and now it's going. I think season two is going to be exclusively on Paramount Plus. So it's, it's just they, they have no sense of direction. It's just it's it just totally confounding to me, just from a business standpoint. I, I feel like they should just like roll the dice somehow, like really sweeten up to Lucasfilm and try to get some sort of Indiana Jones TV show going, because otherwise, like I. It seems like nowadays you want to have that big, um, you know, crossover show that could grab people. Star Trek has always been, uh, it's mainstream, but it's kind of cult mainstream, where you have a very dedicated fan base, but a lot of people that just don't connect to Star Trek. Whereas, if you did something like an Indiana Jones show, maybe you could grab more of the general audience and lock it down on a Paramount Plus as an exclusive. I don't know that Fatal Attraction is going to do that for you. Well, honest question, Kevin. Uh, who has kind of the the rights right now, in, in which it's kind of the library uh, rights to what, what was it, Chronicles of Young Indiana Jones? Is that on Disney Plus or is that on Paramount Plus? What do you think? Oh, that's an excellent question. Um, I think it would be owned by Paramount, wouldn't it? It's tough because it, it's a Lucasfilm property too, right? And that was acquired by Disney yeah okay you know i'm I'm gonna jump on um disney plus as we speak mm -hmm. and uh nothing is immediately coming up when i'm looking up young indiana yeah I, i'm getting the young black stallion and mighty joe young uh <laughs> that's what i'm getting uh, and uh, again this is canada so who knows what the licensing uh rules or, or issues are here versus what our American listeners might be finding on their Disney Plus app. Because I believe, like, the Star Wars movies were made independently by George Lucas, starting with Empire. Um, I'm pretty sure the Indiana Jones films were Paramount productions that Lucasfilm was overseeing. Um, so I'm pretty sure the rights of all that stuff belong to Paramount. I am on my Paramount Plus app, Cam, and I can confirm that uh, even if you just type in the word young, um, Paramount Plus has nothing for you. <laughs> well, that also doesn't surprise me either. <laughs> but guess what? If I wanted to watch NCIS Hawaii, um, I could stream that now. Well, they probably do get a lot of views for the NCIS stuff, to be fair. True. Actually, I, I could watch Sabrina the Teenage Witch, uh, if I wanted to. Yeah. Um, uh, I could watch, uh, 902 and 0, but this looks like the, uh, 
revamp. I, I'd rather watch kind of the old school 90210 versus like whatever the new version is out the the reboot version. Uh, I guess what I'm getting at is um, the library here in Canada is quite pathetic. Uh, I, I actually they have Titanic, Jack Reacher, uh, Mission Impossible, you know Wayne's World. So it, it's not all. But, but also, it's stuff that I think I already have access to on Amazon Prime or Netflix as we speak as well. So it's like, eh, whatever. Yeah, like I do think a flashy new Mission Impossible TV show could be a really good thing for Paramount Plus because that grabs more mainstream eyeballs than Star Trek does. But I, I don't know what the deals would be with that because perhaps, you know, while Tom Cruise is producing those movies, he doesn't want a TV show on the air. Um, kind of potentially taking attention away from the movies. So, <sighs> Paramount, you got problems, and I don't have answers for you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, Cam. Uh, do you want to pull off your uh, earphones? Uh, uh, maybe get a count a, a countdown timer ready. I'll have one going as well. Then, in, in sixty seconds, uh, come join me just as I share my initial thoughts on uh, Star Trek Discovery season four, episode two, the anomaly. Sounds good. So, listeners, it sounds as if uh, Cam has uh, taken off his headphones. Uh, this one, uh, we kind of discussed that there seems to be some sort of self-awareness that Star Trek Discovery was gaining with the premiere and understanding the limits of Burnham as a leader and as a character. Well, I don't know. It, it just seems as if um, they can only go so far in, in terms of learning what to do with the characters. Uh, they did Saru wrong in this situation. Uh, and also, didn't we all kind of know that this storyline with Book, where is going to eventually go? And as much as like, it, it, like I, I did like the, the Grey storyline in, in which he's talking about his new body, transitioning into a new body. We all can understand what, what that is trying to say about you know a uh, trans character here in Star Trek but they still haven't explained Gray's constitution is Gray just like a floaty ghost that's going to go into like a synth bot a la Admiral Picard which they had to get that in as well I just don't know how much the show is really learning at this point but I've got so much more to say in just a few weeks so uh, tune in right now and uh, hey Cam good to have you back why thank you it's good to be back I think it was the best uh, one minute of uh, subspace transmissions we've ever done. <laughs> well, um, I'll have to determine that when I watch Discovery and weigh in on your um, one minute of thoughts there. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, Cam, you and I are going to have a fun uh, time discussing this episode in uh, a couple weeks. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Well, okay. I think on that note, our assignment is complete. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, we want to hear from you. Jump on over to the Facebook page at facebook.com slash subspacepod. But following up on what you just said, Tyler, what are we doing next week? Cam, it will be the 30-year anniversary of Star Trek The Undiscovered Country. It is one of my top Star Trek films of all time. We have a special guest will be joining us for a little bit of that episode as well to offer thoughts on what makes it such a special movie. But we've got a bit of a um, a bit of a hook into it in, in which we want to examine it in a way that we haven't before. We've already done kind of a review. We, we want to go a little bit beyond that. So uh, listeners, uh, just be prepared. Why don't you watch Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, in the week leading up to it? And uh, it'll, it'll be a fun episode to tune into. It's been a while since I've watched this movie. I'm looking forward to revisiting it. I guess the last time was when we saw it in theaters. So, yeah. Yeah, that's probably like five years ago. And honestly, it's one of those movies that it doesn't disappoint me. Um, 
but uh, it's like you said, it's been a while since uh, I watched that one. It's it's just so taut in the kind of mystery elements. In like, I wish Star Trek could more frequently in in the films, like kind of genre hawk just a little bit more, rather than just being like generic sci fi action movie. Well, maybe on Prodigy at some point. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Okay, you can of course find us on the Twitter. I'm at Cam. V is in Vines Smith. That's a good one. Uh, <laughs> uh, you can find me at Reportin. That's R E P O R T O N N as in Netflix, baby. Netflix. Okay, so until next time, the arena is closed. complete.